Today we will examine the glory of the gospel. There are many passages that summarize the gospel in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. You could look at Isaiah 53 for one of the Old Testament ones. But Paul does it perfectly here in Acts chapter 13. And I want to give a big picture, uh, a clear presentation of the gospel. We know that uh, on this day we get to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. We celebrate his victory over death. And I thought this would be a perfect passage for us to rehearse in our minds and go over again the glory of the gospel. So today we will see the person and work of Jesus Christ and see that it is truly good news indeed. The setting for our passage is the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries are traveling north through the region of through the city and to the city of Pisidian Antioch. This city is in what we know today as modern-day Turkey. If you look at the map, you can see that, by the way, that track was not the way they were going. It's more along the lines of they went came from here up that way. But it's in modern-day Turkey. So they are in modern-day Turkey or in that area back 2,000 years ago. The missionary team had just decreased in size. John Mark has left the team and returned to Jerusalem. And Paul comes upon this city and goes in with the missionary team and begins to speak and listen in a synagogue, in a local synagogue. They are, there are Jews there and God-fearing Gentiles, as we see in our passage. And while visiting there, the people address Paul and say, guys... Step up and speak. Brethren, talk to us. Tell us what you're here to tell us. So it's an open door. And Paul stands up and begins to speak with the authority of God's word and gives a clear, concise picture of the gospel, a presentation of the gospel. You can see in verse 26 of Acts chapter 13, a summary of the message is found. Notice in verse 26 it states, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. This is a summary of the message. This is what he's talking about. Paul summarizes that what he was sharing was the message of this salvation. Literally, the logos of this salvation, the word of this salvation. The word of God given to us concerning salvation. The word salvation is one of those uh, Christian words that is often used and not understand, uh, understood. The short form of the word is saved. Now, I'll never forget the, one of the first times I was evangelizing and talking to somebody. I was real new to it and I just became a believer and gotten saved. And I was talking to this gentleman and started sharing the gospel with him in, his, in a living room. And as I did, I just looked at him, and I, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to say, and I looked at him and said, Hey, are you saved? And he looked at me and said, "Yeah, uh, No, I'm not. I'm not saved. Well, that's not the way, by the way, to evangelize. You don't ask them, Hey, are you saved? Most of the time, they have no idea what that term means. They need to be explained that it's a deliverance from God's judgment and being set right with God and freed from bondage of sin. But he said, no, I'm not saved. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let me tell you how you can get saved. <laughs> and I gave the gospel, and by the grace of God, he worked in the guy's life, and he became a believer right there. It was pretty amazing. I was, uh, wow, this is, this is the way it's supposed to go all the time. It didn't work that way. Years later, as I've looked back, it's never gone that way again. <laughs> I've never had it to say, are you saved? Nope. You want to be? Yep. Tell me how. Okay. Wouldn't that be great if it was like that all the time? But the Lord was so gracious to me during that time and to this gentleman, giving him salvation. It was cool because about 10 years later, the guy comes up to me. He had gone and moved to a different place. He walks up to me at church and says, hey, Mike, how are you? I'm like, who are you? 
And he said, I'm that guy that got saved. Oh, wow. <laughs> Glad you're here. <laughs> salvation. What is it? The word salvation, again, is misunderstood. It, it means deliverance. Deliverance from what? It's deliverance from the power and the penalty of sin. If a person is saved, they are delivered from the power and penalty, the bondage of sin. Salvation is deliverance from the wrath of God and the bondage of sin in our lives. It's being set free from that bondage of sin. So Paul states to the crowd, I'm here to announce the word of God on salvation, deliverance. So maybe you're here today, I want to I lay that out there. Are you saved? I'm asking it. You now know what it means. Are you delivered from the power and penalty of sin? Are you going to heaven if you died tonight? Are you free from the bondage of sin? This is good news, this deliverance that Paul talks about. The fact is, is that the way the deliverer is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who delivers. Jesus is the way out of God's judgment and into eternal life. Actually, the main message of salvation is Jesus himself. You can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself. You can't even sanctify yourself by yourself. You need Christ, Jesus. You need him. God's promise and provision of his son to save people from himself. The life, the death, the resurrection of the son of God. Is This is an important day for us today, isn't it? It's the day for us to remember that he came into the world to deliver us. And he's alive, which shows that we can be delivered. And guarantees that we can be delivered. So Paul stands up and gives arguably one of the finest four-minute presentations of the gospel ever recorded. Paul gives all the major features of a God-glorifying gospel presentation. So if you're a believer here and you want to know how to share the gospel in four minutes or less, here's a good one. Memorize it because it's perfect. I want us to walk through this gospel presentation today. For a few reasons. First, I, I believe we can never rehearse the gospel enough. <laughs> we need to go over it and over it and over it and over it in our minds. Every time we sin, we go back to the gospel, don't we? Even as believers, don't we? We go back to the truth that my sin's paid for and Christ is alive. And so I'm alive in Christ. Second, I believe there are maybe people in this room who have heard maybe bits and pieces of it, but I want to give as clear a presentation of who Christ is so that you can choose to follow him. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. I want to give you hope today. Hope of a new life in Christ. And third, I want to, us to go from this place today clear in our understanding of the gospel and motivated to share the gospel with other people. In our community. You understand we live in a lost and dying community. Don't we? They're everywhere aren't they? People that don't have hope. We have hope. He is alive. Christ died and he's alive now. He rose from the dead. You have hope to share. Share it with our community. Proclaiming the good news. Of a living savior. Just like Paul did. As he encountered these people. So today we will look at Paul's clear presentation of the gospel. So that we will be motivated to apply this message of salvation to each of our lives. Whether unbeliever coming to Christ. Believer reminding ourselves of the gospel. And believer being ready to proclaim the gospel. Share it with others. We will see Jesus is the promised one of Israel. He's the promised one of Israel. Second, we will see Jesus is the Savior who died but now lives. And third, we will see Jesus is the one we must believe in to be saved. Paul begins by laying the foundation of where did the Savior. I'm sorry. Somebody, y'all, some of y'all are laughing at me just because my, I went to Keynote and it did this little special thing. And I've got things on my face and we're filled here people are like man this guy is turning into a seeker sensitive 
mega church pastor. I'm sorry, it's over the top, I know. Hang in there. Don't be distracted. It's about the gospel, okay? I'll take that out next week. Paul begins by laying the foundation of where did the Savior come from. Let's focus in on the gospel. It's about him. Paul explained that Jesus is the promised one of Israel. In verses 16 to 23, I can't develop all of it. I'm going to have to give you a summary of it. But we see here in 16 to 23 that God was faithful. I won't stay there. God was faithful to Israel for your years culminating with his provision of Jesus, their Messiah and Savior. He was faithful to Israel. Notice in verse 17, God was faithful to his chosen people, Israel. God made them a great people while in Egypt. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he takes them and they moves them right through Jacob and his sons to Egypt. And they become a great nation there. God then delivers Israel from Egypt in the second half of verse 17. God showed that he is faithful to these people. He had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was keeping his promises. He was a faithful God. This is the creator God. He is a faithful God. God was patient with Israel in verse 18 in the wilderness. Remember, they're complaining. They're grumbling. They're groaning. Always saying, God, why? God, why? God, why are you doing this to us? Let's go back to Egypt. But he was patient with them. And he sustained them. And they never had to change even their shoes. They never wore out. And they were fed from the sky every day. God was faithful. Friends, listen to me. God is faithful even when we are not faithful. God is a good God that loves us. And God took care of Israel as an example of this. God cleared out the wicked nations from the land. In verse 19, he had promised to them to give them as an inheritance. So the Canaanites were wiped out. And God appointed little deliverers or judges to rule and protect Israel. In verse 20, God gave Israel a king in verse 21 when they asked. Now we know that their reasons and their motives for asking for the king were not good. But God gave them this king. And then he did what to the king? He replaced him. He got rid of the wicked king and he put a new king in, right? The king... Found in verse 22, God removed the king, wicked king and established a king over God's own heart. That's after God's own heart for Israel. Finally, the pinnacle. Look at verse 23. The pinnacle of God's faithfulness was he gave a savior in the line of David to Israel. He gave Jesus. God had promised a descendant from David would reign on his throne forever. And God kept his promise by sending the Son of God into the world. Jesus was the promised deliverer. He was the greater Moses. He was the greater judge or deliverer. He was a, the greater king. He was the only one, the one and only Savior and deliverer. He was and he is and he will always be the word of salvation. He is the salvation so what is the good news for us today god is a faithful promise-keeping god despite you see through this passage israel's rebellion despite their sinfulness god kept his promises and he sent a savior to israel that's good news for us too by the way because we're not faithful all the time either are we we're the grumblers and the complainers aren't we yet god sent his son into the world to pay for our sin too. God is faithful. This is some encouraging news for all of us. We can count on God as 2 Timothy 2.13 states. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness to Israel was definitely not based on their obedience to God, right? I am so thankful of this, that God is faithful to me 
he's faithful to me not just not even when I'm not sinning or even when I'm sinning. He's faithful. That's good news, isn't it? When you're blowing it, he's still faithful. When we're faithless, he's there. That's the kind of God. That is the God that we serve. Israel was a mess, but God kept his word and provided us a savior. The prophet spoke of Jesus. Isaiah said that there would come after or come a suffering servant who would bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53:11. And guess what? He came. And he fulfilled it perfectly. Beloved, we serve a living Savior because our God is a faithful promise keeper. Next, I want you to notice, and the main idea here, Jesus is the Savior who died but now lives. It's found in verses 24 to 37. It is the most important. It's the key part of the presentation. Paul lays out exactly who Jesus is and what he did. Notice first, I want you to see in verses 24 and 25, Jesus had a forerunner who properly identified him. After John had proclaimed in verse 24, notice, before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is worded a little strange in the New American Standard. The translators do it a little different. Ultimately, it means at the beginning here, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, he's basically saying Jesus came after John had given an announcement that Jesus was coming and that people needed to repent and be ready for the Messiah to come. The Savior had a forerunner. You need to remember this message. Paul was giving exactly what should be in a gospel presentation here. Jesus didn't come and just say, I'm it. There was somebody that came before and said, he's coming, and he's going to be the one that you need to follow. Notice that it's the exact same order of all four gospel presentations. And by the way, that Paul is speaking and saying these things before the Gospels were even written. So this is, it follows the same exact course, the same exact outline as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where John is mentioned as the forerunner and his responsibility and his role is mentioned. And then Jesus is explained. Paul's following that same order. All the Gospels do the same thing. Israel was promised a king. Israel was promised a savior. And then a forerunner shows up and says he's here. He's coming. Just as God's word had said it would happen. Interestingly enough, the emphasis by Paul was that John never believed that he was the savior. In fact, John knew he was not even worthy to untie the savior's sandals. The same truths are mentioned in the other gospels, aren't they? He's making a point that a man that was considered great by most in the world at that time, most Jews especially, would have thought that John the Baptist was a really holy man. That as great as John the Baptist was, he was nothing compared to Christ. And even he thought that he was nothing compared to Christ. Friends, we can know they... The forerunner was legit because he knew who was Lord and who was not. <laughs> Listen to me closely. This is so important. A very important application point for you to take. The ones that know that Jesus is Lord and not themselves really get who Jesus is. John got it. <laughs> Listen to me. That applies to us. If you think your life is about you and you're Lord of your life, then you don't really know Jesus. Because if you really know Jesus, who's Lord? Him, not us. Right? So that is the message for all of us to heed. Jesus is Lord. We're not even fit to untie his sandals, just like John the Baptist said. 
Again, our problem is we want life here to be all about us. But the gospel says, and listen closely, the gospel says it's all about Christ, Jesus, not us. Why are you here today? Why are we here today? Listen, it's not to punch our religion card. All too often, Easter and Christmas are the days that everybody makes sure to be there. We, we're there. we got to punch that card. I, I, at least I go to church on Easter. Beloved, that's not why we're here today. We're here to celebrate and worship the only one that matters, Christ Jesus. The one who is deserving of all of our praise and all of our honor and all of our exaltation. We're not even worthy to be here. We're not even worthy to sing praises to him. We're not even worthy to untie his sandals. You're not here to work our way to God. If you came to church at every service for the next 20 years, that would not be enough merit to get you to heaven. It would do nothing. That would be filthy rags. If you were here to do these services or come sing or do whatever to get your way to God, it's useless. It does nothing. And we're not here because it's our moral obligation to somehow win God's approval. It isn't to somehow exalt ourselves as better than the rest of the world. Well, I went to church. How about you? <laughs> Those things are futile. Do you understand? Those are prideful statements. We are really, we're here because we're like John the Baptist, unworthy to untie his sandals. We're just here to exalt him. It's for his glory that we're here. We're here to worship the living Savior. He is risen, isn't he? He is alive. He is Savior. He is Lord. We're not worthy to know him or serve him, but he loved us despite our wickedness. And so we're here to worship Christ today, aren't we? We're not worthy to know him or serve him, but he loved us despite us. Next, we see Paul once again steps back. The verse that I talked to in verse or talked to you about in verse 26, look at it again. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation has been sent. Put simple, dear friends, I have God's good news of salvation for you. That's what he's getting at. Next, we see Paul launches again into an explanation of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Notice in second, it says, Jesus was rejected and executed by his own people according to God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 27. What in the world? Boy, I'll tell you what. You change one thing. There it is. You know what happened? Let me, let me, uh, you know what happened? I, I'm going to just bare my soul here. I took just a little, I, I'm being honest, I'm going to bare my soul. I took just a little bit of pride in something. Just a little bit. Last week, two of the elders looked at me and said this. You're a master with that PowerPoint thing. <laughs> they did. Honest, they did. They said, you pushed the button at the exact right time. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm pretty good at that, aren't I? <laughs> and now God has just, wham! <laughs> no, Mike, you are just a man unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. That was for free. <laughs> Man, I'm a, I'm a sinner needing a Savior. I'm so thankful Christ came. Aren't you? Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate, that he be executed. 
when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. In this gospel presentation, like others in Acts, Paul rides the track of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility perfectly. Both are truths are revealed here. The leaders are responsible for rejecting their Savior. They had been given the word. They had been told over and over and over that he was coming. In the scriptures, it pointed forward to him and that he would be rejected by his own. And they are responsible for the rejection of Christ. But God, at the same time, was sovereign over the rejection. Having this all ordained out from eternity past. You know why Jesus died? Because his people rejected him. You know why Jesus died? Because God ordained for him to die. What is that? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Perfectly laid side by side. How do we figure that out? We don't. We know it just happened. That's the way it happened. God did it. Their rejection of his own people, of his own Messiah, was prophesied in Old Testament Scripture. Psalm 118.22 states this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Written hundreds, maybe even a thousand years before it happens, the builders were going to reject the stone. Who's the stone? Jesus Christ. And he was going to become what? The chief cornerstone. God ordained the rejection of his own son. And they did it. Jesus was righteous, but he was rejected. Jesus was innocent, but he was executed. Jesus was the king, but the people chose Caesar and Barabbas over their own king. There was only one perfect innocent man that ever walked this planet. His name is Jesus. And his own people had him crucified. So you ask, well, how in the world is this good news? We said it the other night. Everyone who repents and believes in Jesus, their sins are paid for by the death of Christ. Everybody who is trusting in Christ, your sins are paid for. Every prideful thought, every lustful thought, everything you've ever done sinful is paid for by Christ Jesus. That is good news, isn't it? This is the heart of the gospel. It includes what we think and what we feel and what we're committed to. Christ changed. Christ died for us. He changed our circumstances. If we'll believe in him, if we'll trust in him, if we're committed to him. Anyone who has turned from their sins and believed in Jesus, their sins are atoned for. They're paid for. The wrath of God is satisfied. So Jesus was rejected by his own. He was buried, and he really died. But God, he is alive forevermore. Notice, third, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to many witnesses according to God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 30. Two great words again, right? Two great words. Christ is dead. Christ died is what, is what uh, Paul says. And then he starts and transitions. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised Christ from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled the promise to our children. And that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead. No longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That is, he died. 
and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he, that is Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. This section is one of the most uh, attractive, beautiful pictures of the resurrection in all of Scripture. Look at the glory of God revealed here, beloved. Jesus was dead, but God raised him from the dead. Mankind, his own people, killed the incarnate God, but God raised him from the dead. This is a powerful message. Paul was saying the leaders made sure Jesus was dead, but God raised him up. And then Jesus showed himself for many days to many witnesses alive from the dead. Friends, this is the message that separates true Christianity from all other religions. All other religious leaders, you've heard this before, all other religious leaders have died and their bodies have what? Decayed. They've rotted. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead and he will never die again. Jesus was seen by many. Jesus' resurrection was proclaimed by witnesses. Now, I want to make a very important point about the resurrection of Jesus here. Today, the world just doesn't get this concept. They don't get the resurrection. If you go up to somebody that is lost and you say, we serve a man who bodily died, was put in a ground, and rose from the dead bodily. Physically, his body raised from the dead three days later. They will look at you and say, you are crazy. And if they don't say it, they're what? Thinking it. They think you're nuts. But it's a fact. It's the truth. Scientifically, can we prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Can we do that again? Can we raise somebody else? No. That is what's called a what? Miracle. It's a miracle. Jesus was dead. Bodies don't come back to life. But his came back to life. So you tell somebody that is all about science, and they say that it's, it has to be the science order only. And you tell them, Jesus died and he rose from the dead. They're going to look at you and go, prove it. Show me it. Do it again. And you're going to say, I can't. It happened then. It's not happening now. He's alive. I know he's alive. How do you know? What are you going to do? You're going to appeal to the word of God. This is what Paul does. He appeals to the truth. It was witnessed. It was seen by 500 people. And we get this from Scripture, and we say, hey, this is what God says. God says it. God's Word de describes Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection countless times, doesn't it? It says he died, and he rose from the dead. And so what do we say? God's Word says that Jesus rose from the dead. And we're okay with it, aren't we? When we read it in Scripture, we are reading the Word of God. And the only way a person believes in the word of God is if God has used the word to convert their hearts. Otherwise, they suppress that truth. If you go up to an atheist and say, my Lord and Savior died to take my place and for sin on a cross, they're going to call you a fool. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's good news to us who are alive in him. We can appeal to the word. We can appeal to their conscience. We can call them to repent and believe. But the main witness is the appeal to scripture. The word of this salvation that Paul says. Remember this friends. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Yet for us who believe. It is the power of God at work in us to save our souls. It makes sense to us because God has given us 
ears to hear, right? We have ears to hear and eyes to see. And no, we're not talking about the deaf being able to hear. He's talking about what in Scripture when he says that? Spiritual understanding. Spiritual awareness. Why are you here today? I hope it's because you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Christ Jesus is alive. And we're here to worship him, aren't we? Because he really did die. And he really did rise from the dead. We know it. Because the word of God says so. And because God's worked in our hearts to believe it. And know it's true. God's word said he would live. Even though he died. Even before Jesus died and rose from the dead. Now I want you to see this. What does Paul appeal to? What does Paul appeal to? He appealed to the word of God too. He appealed to three different Old Testament passages in the word that talked about what? The resurrection of Jesus. The guaranteed resurrection of the Savior. So he does what we need to do. We need to grab our Bibles and say, hey, folks, I got good news for you. Look what this says. Jesus is alive. This is what it says. And that's what Paul did. Notice in verse 32 to 37, Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of God's prophesied word. We proclaim the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and in the, he raised up Jesus. Paul's simple, put simple, Paul says, God promised the forefathers. God gave them his word and said he would have a living redeemer and savior. And where did God promise this? Well, he gives one. Psalm 2. If you look over at Psalm 2 and verse 7 and 8, it's obviously pointing to the fulfillment of the Davidic promises that Jesus would be the one that would not stay in the grave. In Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8, it states this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, the determined plan of God. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and every and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, Obviously, Paul knows this is a reverence, reference to the resurrection of the Savior. Why? Because the Spirit of God is working in him, and he's revealing it. The one who gets the nations as an inheritance. What does this mean? In our passage, Paul is obviously, over in Acts, when he's talking to him, is stating the point of Jesus' resurrection was an affirmation to the world this is who I knew him to be from eternity past. He's not saying today you become my son. He's saying the resurrection is the day that God says he's my son. He's the one that will sit on the throne. The resurrection validates, affirms, and authenticates that Christ Jesus is the promised one. He's the one that would die, and he's the one that would rise from the dead. He would ascend, and then one day he would return, and he will sit on David's throne. It means when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus was shown to be the son and affirmed by the resurrection, the power of God to be the son of God. Jesus has always been the son, hasn't he? But at the resurrection, the God-man was fully revealed as the Son of God. Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. And when he rose from the dead, it was like he is the resurrection and the life. He's God. No one should walk out of this place today. Not totally committed to the one who died and rose from the dead. You should be all out for him. He's alive. He rose from the dead. The resurrection requires full allegiance. Next we see Paul appeal to another Old Testament passage. In Isaiah 55.3. He suggests that Jesus couldn't fulfill the role of king. On David's throne forever without dying and rising from the dead. That's what he implies by that. 
Jesus had to die to atone for sin. The demands of the law had to be met in order for the king to have any citizens in the eternal kingdom. And then finally in the last Old Testament scripture, notice Paul appeals to Psalm 16.10. Even David prophesied of one in his line who would not undergo decay. The passage that was read today. Jesus rose from the dead un, unlike any in the line of David. Jesus is alive. Jesus, so Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the Messiah was to do and be. He was the sacrifice for sin. He was the resurrected Savior. He is the righteous King who will reign forever. So we come to our last point, and I want you to take special note of this. Jesus is the one we must believe in to be saved. Notice Paul makes two appeals. In verse 38 and 41, 38, he states, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that you, the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Here Paul turns to the results and the required response of the good news concerning Jesus. So you've heard. Jesus died. Jesus rose. This is the good news. Jesus, God is faithful. He's provided the promised one. You've heard the truth. Now what are the results of this? The results are clear. There is hope for the sinner. In Jesus death and resurrection. There's hope for us. Second there's a requirement for heeding and believing in order to be saved. You can't just know facts. You must be committed to the one who died and rose from the dead. You must believe in him. You must not just know, okay, God said this and this happened. God said this and this happened. You must be sold out for Christ. You must have a heart that's committed to him. And Paul gives a warning there if you don't. Notice the glorious hope in these verses, though. We can have our sins forgiven through Jesus. This is so important. I cannot stress this enough to you. Listen closely. Most of our world thinks that the way God's forgiveness goes is he just winks at it. Or he turns the other way. Or he says, okay, no big deal. God is not a bad parent. <laughs> Do you hear me? God is not a bad parent. What's a bad parent? A bad parent is this. I'm going to give you a bad parent. A bad parent is, is a child looks at them and says something really disrespect, disrespectful and dishonoring to God and to them. And the parent looks at them and says, no big deal, and walks away. That would be a horrible parent, wouldn't it? Why would that be a horrible parent? It would be a parent that said, sin doesn't matter. <laughs> you do whatever you want to do. That's a horrible parent. God is not a horrible parent. God is a just God. Sin has to be paid for. Now, he is a loving parent. And a love that's far beyond anything we can even comprehend. His love is so great that what he did was is he knew that we could not atone for our own sin. We could not make up for our own sin. We could not make our sin go away. So what he did was he sent his son into the world to what? Take our sin and provide forgiveness for us. We cannot be right with God through ourselves. We get forgiveness only by faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe that he died for us personally. Now, this is why I think we need to be very careful, even in our explanation of the atonement. I was talking to a brother this week. This is, this is one of the key things. Very important. Listen to me. A person must understand and believe that Christ didn't just die. And that he didn't just die for sin. But that he died for you personally. 
He must be your personal Savior. You must understand it was your sin that was responsible for his death. For if you aren't believing that, then you have this generic idea of the atonement. And you haven't applied it and you don't understand that it applies directly to your life and your heart and your sinfulness. Faith in Christ's death for you is the only way that you can be forgiven. That's the only way. And this faith, this belief that Paul talks about is not just affirming some facts and being able to pass an a, a Bible trivia quiz. It is a faith that is committed to the Savior that died and rose from the dead. It's a faith that loves Him. It's a faith that would die for Him. Now I know you say, well, my faith is weak. Anybody in here? Mine too. But just a grain of a grain of faith, a true faith in Christ will wipe your sins completely clean. And we all echo that prayer of the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Forgiveness is found in Christ Jesus alone. Children, I want you to listen to me. This is the day Pastor Mike's going to talk directly to you. Your parents' faith is not going to forgive your sin. Your parents can be committed to Jesus and love them with all their heart. But their faith is not going to save you. You must turn from your sins and commit to Christ Jesus the Lord. You personally must believe in Him that he died for you specifically, and that he rose from the dead. I want to encourage you, children. This is a great day for you to cry out to Christ and ask God to save you, deliver you from the power and penalty of death and sin. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. All of us, okay? You listening? Good, I see eyes. I see young eyes all over the place looking at me. Isn't that great, kids? Isn't it great, parents? Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in him. He died. He rose from the dead. We all deserve our own cross, but Christ Jesus took it, and he died in our place. We are forgiven if we trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us. This belief Paul speaks about is a committed faith, a dependent faith. But notice the deliverance isn't only a forgiveness of sin. And this is so important. This deliverance is also from the power of sin. See, he says, see the law of God shows all of us that we are sinners, doesn't it? Let's check real quick. Let's check. How many people in here have lied before? Don't raise your hand. You don't have to raise it. If you aren't thinking me, then you've. You just lied. Do you understand? We're all liars. We're born into the world liars by nature, aren't we? What does the law do to all of us? It condemns us. Right? Does the law being told what to do save you? Nope. Can't do it. Matter of fact, I don't know about you guys, but when I was young growing up, my parents told me to do something. If I could get away with it, I would what? Not do it. Often, why? Just because inside my soul, in my heart, I know I'm the worst sinner in the place. I wanted to disobey. There were times that I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, right? That's what the law does. It condemns us. It shows us that we're sinners And we want to do whatever we want to do, not what God wants us to do. So the law shows us that we're incapable of obedience to God and his righteous standards. But Jesus' work frees us from all this. (laughs) 
It frees us first and foremost from bondage to sin. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, when we repent and believe in that truth, we are literally freed. Our hearts are new and we're able to obey God. We actually can obey. We can rejoice in him. We can delight in him. The law actually becomes what? Good. I actually love the law of God. That's a wild thought, isn't it? I love it. I love to be told what to do by God. How about you? Oh, some of you in the room, I don't really like that much. You must ask the question. Have you been freed? I'm freed to obey. I like to do it. Do I like to do it all the time? No. Because I still live in this body of death. However, is my heart intention, my desire to obey the Lord. How about you? Why? Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. Because of his resurrection, his life, we who believe have now been made alive. We're alive together with Christ. And we are free to obey God now and enjoy him and delight in him. God tells us, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is, the second commandment is like it, you must love your neighbor as yourself. So love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And everybody who knows the resurrection, knows Jesus Christ, we all say, yes, sir. I want to do that. I want to love him with all my heart, mind, and soul. And there is an element of me, a part of me that does. Nobody, nobody, I would not be here. <laughs> There's no way I'd be doing this. If God did not change my heart through Christ Jesus. He frees us to obey and to enjoy him through the resurrection. So we'll close with the passage. I want you to look over at Romans 6 and we're done. This passage speaks, speaks directly to the born again believer. The one who has repented and believed. The one who has been freed because of faith in Christ. The one who died and rose from the dead. This passage talks about our sanctification. That we are now able to obey God. And enjoy him. In Romans chapter 6 it states. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul's asking this question because people were saying, well, if I'm declared right with God in chapter 5, I can do whatever I want to do now? No. May it never be. In light of forgiveness, in light of being justified, in light of being right with God, there's a new way of thinking and a new heart that's happened. Look at it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death. We died with him. Our sin died with him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. How important is the resurrection? Oh, it's very important. Not only does it guarantee that our justification is possible and did happen when we believe in God, it also guarantees that sanctification is possible, that I can walk in newness of life. I can serve the king. Why? Because Jesus is alive. It's beautiful, isn't it? For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would, be, would no longer be slaves to sin, no longer bondage to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Praise God. 
Death no longer is master over Christ Jesus our Lord. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, beloved, listen. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Folks, Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. He ascended to heaven. One day he's going to return. So we who have been born again, we who have repented and trusted in Christ, we have died with him to the old self, and we are now alive in Christ. And we can serve him and obey him and enjoy him and not let sin be master over us anymore. Yes, we are still in these bodies of death, but we have new minds and new hearts. And we turn from sin quickly and we trust in him. Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. One day he's going to come back. Bodily, he's alive. Here's the question. I want you to ask the question in your own hearts and in your own minds. Are you alive? That's the question. That's the very important question for everybody in the room. Are you alive? Now, some of you in the room will say, yeah, I'm breathing just fine. I'm, I'm alive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reality of a new life. Do you have life in Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Is Christ your Lord and Savior? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you now walking in newness of life? Serving him and enjoying him? That's the question we all must be able to answer. You say, well, Mike, you sure are being heavy here. I heard the story of D.L. Moody a while back ago. He had a revival. And in the revival, the Chicago fires happened the next night. And in that, D.L. Moody preached his heart out in the first sermon did everything he could. He gave everything and did not invite anybody to receive Christ, did not give the gospel clearly. It was more of a setup of you're a sinner message. And the fire came the next day. He said that he would never, ever, ever preach another sermon the rest of his life without giving the gospel. I want you to understand, beloved, you don't know. You don't know whether this is your last day or not. You do not know that. By the grace of God, Samantha Tierney, though she was in a motorcycle accident, she is doing okay and in surgery. But it reminded me that we have absolutely no true understanding of how long we'll live. Any one of us in this room, any one of you in this room could die at any time. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me clearly. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I want you to cry out to Christ today. You need a Savior. You're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. All the believers in the room are like, man, Mike, you are really going in. <laughs> yes, I am. Because there is a burden on my soul for everybody in this room. I want you to know you are not going to heaven based on how good you are. You are not going to heaven because you came to church on Resurrection Sunday. You're not going to heaven for any of those things. You're going to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ alone. If he is your Lord and Savior. So are you alive today? Are you alive? If not, get right with God now. I appeal to you. As Paul says in this thing, don't be like those that were prophesied in the Old Testament that they would hear and not believe.
and walk away. Don't be like them. Turn to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our hope. We know, Lord, that our hope is not found in ourselves. We know that we are sinful people without you. We need you to work in our hearts. And, Lord, I pray right now for all the children in this room. I pray that, Lord, that you will work in their hearts, in each one of their hearts, that they would see their sin, see their need of a Savior, and that they would repent and believe in you. Please, God, save. And, Lord, I pray for the adults in the room. Maybe they've been hearing this message for years, but their commitment is not to you, but it's a commitment to cleaning up themselves and being a good person or being a religious person. I pray that you will show them that they have absolutely no way of being a good person, that they need Christ. Please, Father, save these people in this room that are not Christians. And Lord, I pray for the believers in this room that the gospel unfortunately has become somewhat cold and they are walking in rebellion. I pray that this message of the gospel will penetrate their hearts again and they will turn to you. That they will find and taste and see that you are good. And Father, I pray for all of us that today we will exalt Jesus Christ alone, not ourselves, but you. For you sent your son, and he died in our place, and he rose from the dead, and we long for the day when he will return. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.